You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part three in our series on Australia's Burke and Wills Expedition. Let's start with a quick reminder. If you want to see a map of the expedition's route, you can find one on our website, explorerspodcast.com. I have also put a link to a map in the show notes of the podcast. And speaking of the show notes, remember I have added names of people and places in them, so you can always reference the list right on your phone if you get confused. And just like that, reminders are done. Let's roll. Last time, the Victorian Exploring Expedition, the VEE, had departed from Melbourne on August 20th, 1860. More than 15,000 people had come out to see off the colony's new heroes. However, the expedition ran into its share of issues, even on the first day. The 20 tons of supplies and provisions meant that the wagons and camels were overloaded. Two wagons would break down even before leaving the city, and another would get stuck in the mud. The expedition would manage just four miles on its first day. The plan of the expedition was to journey to Menendee, the northernmost outpost in the area, and then from there go to Cooper's Creek, about halfway across the continent. At that point, the expedition's leader, Robert Burke, would then be able to proceed in whatever way he deemed most prudent. But for now, the VEE simply needed to get to Menendee, a trek of about 460 miles. The most difficult part for the expedition was likely just getting into a routine. People thrive on routine, and an expedition like this even more so. Unfortunately for the men of the VEE, they were still fumbling through the awkward phase of getting to know one another. They had not worked together long, and it takes time to find out the strengths and weaknesses of your comrades. And let us remember, Burke had fired several people on the eve of departure. Thus, they were short-handed. This meant more work for everyone. The route through Victoria would go through a string of small towns and villages, the populations growing sparser and sparser the further north the VEE ventured. Still, each community was thrilled to get a look at the expedition, and there were celebrations and ceremonies all along the route. Last time, we mentioned that the VEE was getting started late. August means winter in Australia, and while that gets you cooler weather, it also means rain. And within a couple of days of departing, the rains did arrive, and oftentimes in a torrential downpour. The land where the expedition was passing through was called Black Soil Country, and in the summer it baked until it was hard as a rock but when the rains came, it produced a thick, goopy, slippery muck. The camels and horses struggled in the wet in the mud, and the wagons got stuck. The men would find themselves continually digging the axles out of the sludge, 
and had to put branches in the wheel ruts for traction. And when one wagon got stuck, it forced all the others behind it to stop and wait. Also, the rain soaked everything, including the tents and supplies and everyone's clothing, which only made everything heavier. And to add to this misery, the rains were, at times, accompanied by hail. Not a lot of fun. All of this would make for slow progress, no more than two to three miles an hour. Rain, hail, mud, it meant everyone was miserable, and this included the camels and horses. The camels were especially bothered by the wet, as their hooves were not made for the slippery mud and rocks. It caused them to lose their footing. As a result, George Landells, the expedition's second-in-command and camel master, ordered them not to be ridden. This meant that almost everyone had to walk in the mud. Ludwig Becker, the expedition's genial 52-year-old German naturalist, found himself trudging through the muck for ten hours. He would write, quote, No tea, no fire, we slept in the wet. End quote. A note about Becker and Hermann Beckler, the expedition's doctor and botanist. They had come on the expedition fully expecting to actually do their jobs as scientists. The Royal Society of Victoria had instructed them to keep detailed records of their journey. They were to study the flora and fauna, collect specimens, and a host of other things. William Wills, the expedition's other scientist, was to keep detailed records on the geography, the water, and the soil, as well as to record meteorological conditions, such as the wind and temperature. He would also be responsible for astronomical observations. But they would quickly find that the scientists were second-rate citizens within the VEE. Burke had little use for collecting samples of flowers or plants or rodents. Wills, by the way, was critical to the VEE, as he was the guy who could actually keep the expedition from getting lost. He displayed his ingenuity by figuring out how to use his compass and sextant while riding a camel, which he did because stopping was not something Burke allowed. Wills noted that the camels were calm and easier to ride than horses. So north the expedition plodded. The rains bogged down everyone, especially the overloaded wagons. The days would typically go something like this. Each morning, a Chinese gong was rung to rouse the men. Tea was brewed, breakfast made, and the camp packed up. The horses and camels were often let free to wander and forage for food in the night, so they would have to be collected if they had strayed. Breaking down the camp and packing it up would take two to three hours. The expedition would then march north for upwards of twelve more hours. Burke would typically ride in front, followed by Landells and the camels, and then the wagons in the rear, which would be overseen by Charles Ferguson, the expedition's 28-year-old American foreman. As the day waned, once the site was located, the men would then spend a couple of hours setting up camp, preparing and eating a meal, and caring for the animals. The officers, of course, didn't have to do any manual labor. They were expected to write in their journals and conduct any work related to their duties. Burke did not write much, but Wills and the other officers were quite prolific. Everyone would then go to sleep and repeat the process the next day. By the way, in these early weeks, Burke rarely slummed it by staying in camp with the men of the expedition. As the leader and celebrity, he usually slept at a farmhouse or at a hotel or an inn. After one week, the VEE would reach the village of Mia Mia, about 50 miles from Melbourne, meaning the expedition was only making about 7 miles a day. Now, a few notes about this initial phase of the journey. One of the sepoys, the camel handlers, resigned. The sepoy, a young man named Samla, was a Hindu, and his religion did not allow him to eat beef, a staple in the diet of the men. Landells therefore accepted his resignation and allowed him to return to Melbourne. Also, remember that Burke had sacked several men just before departing on the journey. Well, to supplement his numbers, he would begin hiring men who turned up at the camp looking for work. This, as you can imagine, netted men of, at times, dubious quality. Some of these recruits would only last days before getting fired or quitting when they realized what they were getting themselves into. 
Another thing that was happening as the expedition moved north was the cost of supplies and services were increasing, sometimes dramatically. Got a broken wagon wheel? Sure, we'll fix it, for several times our normal rate. And considering the circumstances, Burke usually had to pay up. And this was a growing issue. Burke had a checkbook, and he was just writing check after check for provisions and services along the way. It's going to, at some point, come back to haunt him. So the march north went slowly. Some days would be better than others. If the rains were too heavy, the expedition would wait them out before continuing. But wherever the VEE went, they were welcomed by the local people. The camels were always a source of astonishment to everyone. And before long, the expedition was moving beyond the coastal environments, meaning fewer and fewer farms and more of the great inland plains. On September 6th, the VEE would reach Swan Hill on the Murray River. They had traveled 180 miles in 17 days. Here, the expedition would rest for five days as they waited for the heavy rains to pass, and just as important, give everyone a rest. And it is at this time that we will see some changes in the expedition and in Robert Burke. First thing, Burke made some more additions and subtractions to the expedition's ranks. He would let go of three men, one of whom he had hired just a few days earlier. Also, one of the sepoys was ill, and he would be released from the company. The expedition would then add four new men, a few of whom are of interest to us. One was William Hodgkinson, a journalist. Burke had wanted the man from the start. He was brought on as an expedition assistant and a clerk. He was someone Burke, no doubt, believed could chronicle his exploits. Another was Charles Gray, an ex-sailor. By the way, in the last episode, I had mistakenly said that Gray had started out with the expedition, but that was incorrect. He actually doesn't join until this part of our story. And finally, there was a man by the name of Robert Bowman. Bowman was an intriguing addition, since he had been on previous expeditions with explorer Augustus Gregory, and had actually been to Cooper's Creek and the Gulf of Carpentaria. He had tried to join the expedition back in July, but he had been rejected, as he didn't have the right connections. But now, a couple hundred miles from Melbourne, it was clear he could be a valuable addition. He immediately became the most experienced bushman in the VEE. The second thing that happened was the expedition would be joined by Georg von Neumeyer, a professor and member of the Exploration Committee. Von Neumeyer had helped young William Wills obtain his position in the VEE. The man was joining the expedition for a short time while he conducted some studies on the Earth's magnetism. Von Neumeyer's arrival put Burke on edge as he feared that the professor would see the expedition was falling into chaos. So, anything else to report? Anything? Well, I have one more item. How about an arrest notice for one Robert O'Hara Burke? What the heck? It's like a cavalcade of crazy. Here's the story. Burke, as we have noted, was heavily in debt to the tune of about 500 pounds. He had given checks to cover the debts to a variety of parties before departing, but stipulated that they could not be cashed until he returned. However, a debtor tried to cash one of the checks, and it bounced. Thus, a telegraph arrived, telling Burke he would be arrested if he didn't come up with the cash. This was not just an embarrassment for Robert Burke, but a potential catastrophe. The newspapers, if they found out what was going on, would roast him, and the society may very well sack him and send in a replacement. Burke would quickly send a message to a friend in Melbourne asking him to cover the check, but the specter of arrest and public humiliation hung over the VEE's leader. So the Victorian exploring expedition prepared to depart Swan Hill. On September 11, there would be a grand picnic, the men and the animals were refreshed for the first time in weeks. Yet, as we look back at the moment, we can see that there were many problems percolating within the expedition. The constant changing of personnel was causing cohesion issues. The expedition was burning through money, and there was a growing dissension within the ranks. 
Most of this can be blamed on poor planning and erratic leadership. And when I say leadership, I mostly mean Burke. He was, no doubt, under enormous pressure, and not just from within the ranks of the VEE. He had read the newspapers and saw the doubts voiced by the columnists and the readers. All this pressure did a couple of things to Burke. First, it made him more paranoid with each passing day. He trusted no one unless they gave him total loyalty. And second, the uncertainty caused Burke to make dramatic decisions in the heat of the moment, decisions that will not always be in the best long-term interest of the VEE. Charles Ferguson, the expedition's foreman, said this of Burke, quote, He was kind and generous to a fault, but let anything happen out of the routine, he was confused, then excited, until finally he would lose all control of his better judgment, end quote. Burke was ultimately left facing problems from all sides. He needed to cut expenses. He needed to move faster. He needed results. The main problems, in Burke's mind, were the scientists, the camels, and the wagons. The scientists, Burke felt, were worthless. They only got in the way. They took up valuable space and distracted everyone from the real goal of the expedition, to cross the continent. The camels and the wagons were linked. So much of the stuff carried by the wagons was for the camels. It drove Burke mad. What was the point of the camels if his men needed to baby them for 800 miles? Thus, as the VEE departed Swan Hill on September 12th, crossing the Murray River in the process, a plan began to form in Robert Burke's mind. It would be a way to get rid of the scientists, the wagons, and those who he felt were disloyal. Stay tuned as the first shoe will drop soon, very soon. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Three days later, the expedition would arrive at the village of Balrenald. Here, Burke would call a council of war with his officers, unveiling his plans to slim down the expedition and to save money. First, Burke announced that the expedition would be getting rid of a bunch of provisions. This included lumber meant for the forge, sugar, weapons and ammunition, and the lime juice, which was there to prevent scurvy, was put on the chopping block as well. He also ordered a half-ton of clarified Indian butter, which had been brought by George Landells specifically for the camels, to be left behind. The latter item infuriated Landells, who insisted that Burke had no right to dictate how the camels should be treated or fed. He said what Burke was proposing was not healthy for the camels. But Burke was tired of the delays, saying, quote, If they, the camels, cannot do without those things, we should proceed without them. End quote. In reality, Burke was frustrated, and understandably so. Thus, he made these and other dramatic decisions. Next, Burke took aim at the men, firing six of them, including Ludwig Becker and Charles Ferguson. Well, he didn't fire them. He told them that they had to stay in Balrenald, with all the provisions he was leaving there, and that he would send for them later. But this was just Burke's way of getting out of an uncomfortable situation. William Wills said that Burke just couldn't bear to tell someone bad news. He was, Wills said, quote, human and tender-hearted as a woman, end quote. But everyone knew what was up, and it put the men on the verge of mutiny. The fired expedition members were upset, for getting fired, 
and the others were angry as well, not just for their comrades, but for themselves. Now they would be expected to do extra work. They were tired of shifting job responsibilities, too much work, and no respect. The expedition's foreman, Charles Ferguson, confronted Burke, saying, quote, If I am to be discharged, I should like to know it at once. End quote. Burke would admit to Ferguson that he had no intention of recalling any of them. This angered the American, who gathered the men together, and in front of the men, demanded that Burke tell them why they were being discharged. Burke refused to answer and rode away. However, he would return a short time later and offer Ferguson his job back, but at a reduced salary. This only made things worse. It was an insult to Ferguson, and tempers flared, and the two men almost came to blows. Sadly, I said, almost. I would have liked Burke to get his butt whipped. Instead, Ferguson departed. I should note that Ferguson was generally disliked by just about everyone. The men he supervised didn't like his condescending tone and comments, and he wasn't much better with the officers. He was combative and unafraid to voice his opinions. And, in his opinion, he found Burke and most of the rest of the men in the VEE to be lacking in character and ability. So no one really shed a tear about the guy's dismissal. Well, after all this chaos, Burke would amend his decision. He would retain three of the six men he had let go, including Ludwig Becker. Ferguson was not brought back. Burke would write out checks to each of the men he had fired, but it would not be that simple. It turns out that no one was accepting the checks of the VEE, as word had spread that they were bouncing. This will make for a very unhappy Charles Ferguson, who will voice his displeasure loudly and frequently once he gets back to Melbourne. So the VEE pressed onward, slimmed down in manpower and supplies. It was all part of Burke's plans. As for the scientists and wagons, well, that would come later. Over the next couple of weeks, Burke would push the men hard. Morale waned and discipline faded. It made for some bad decisions. The expedition often didn't select a campsite until after dark, or near a place where the animals could find food to graze on. And in the mornings, the locals reported sloppy packing. They would find axes and shovels just left behind by the harried members of the expedition. And it was not long before Burke would make another sudden and surprising decision. He elected to abandon the main road to Menendee and cut across a stretch of land called Molly Country, so-called because the area was dominated by thick molly trees. The proposed route was shorter than if they followed the road, but there was no established trail. And the land consisted mostly of sandhills, some as high as 40 feet, and the aforementioned molly trees. Also, there was little or no water. Why Burke did this was almost inconceivable. Was it arrogance or stupidity? Perhaps he just saw it was shorter on a map, so he made an impulsive decision. That would not have been out of character. No matter, it was a terrible choice. Burke would ride ahead of the rest of the expedition, along with Dr. Von Neumeyer and William Wills. Beckler was left in charge of the wagons. Now, the camels were okay in the sands, but the wagons and horses would soon find themselves half-buried. It was a miserable situation, the wagons only traveling about one mile per hour. Beckler called it, quote, hell on earth, end quote. On September 25th, the wagons would be abandoned as the horses, suffering from thirst, could not pull them any further. The horses would have to be led to a waterhole, and then, once rested, back to the wagons to retrieve them. It made the journey far longer, both in distance and in time. Then, on August 27th, Burke would fire yet another man. Robert Bowman, who had explored with Augustus Gregory, was let go. Bowman had only been brought on a couple of weeks earlier, but Burke disliked him because he had this annoying tendency to point out all the stuff that Burke and the VEE were doing wrong. It was a typical Burke thing to do, removing yet another person who might challenge his actions. The next day, Georg von Neumeyer would depart, his studies completed. Burke had, mostly, been able to shield the professor from the fiasco that was brewing within his ranks. 
Before leaving, one interesting thing that von Neumeyer and Burke discussed was that the professor was going to propose sending a ship to the north coast of Australia to rendezvous with Burke once he crossed the continent. This idea, however, was very vague. Burke would mention it to others on occasion, but he didn't seem to have much hope that it would actually happen. Still, it would be talked about, making others wonder if it was actually part of the grand plan or not. No one really knew. By the way, in the weeks after leaving Swan Hill, Burke and William Wills would form a bond. Wills was eager to please, and he quickly became Burke's favorite officer. The fact that Wills was competent and non-confrontational, and had a strong respect for authority, made the two men come to respect one another. So with von Neumeyer, a scientist, gone, Burke broke out the next phase of his plan, get rid of the scientists. As we noted, Burke was fed up with all the excesses of the expedition. He hated the wagons, he hated all the gear they were forced to carry around, and he hated babysitting the German scientists. Thus, he put them in his sights. On October 1st, Burke told Becker and Beckler, quote, From today, you have to walk inch for inch all the way up to the Gulf of Carpentaria. End quote. Also, he told them that there would be no more scientific investigations. The two would have to work, just like the rest of the men. It is all part of Burke's plan to rid himself of the two Germans. He told George Landells to not allow either of the men to ride or rest. Exhaust them, humiliate them, force them to quit. Burke seems to have especially had it in for the 52-year-old Becker, who was out of shape. He told Landells, quote, walk him until he gives in, end quote. It was a petty and unnecessarily cruel thing for Burke to do. He could simply have been honest with the men, but he never wanted to appear the bad guy. Becker was, as you can imagine, miserable, just as planned. He barely ate for three days and was forced to act as a glorified camel handler. The German naturalist, however, would prove tougher than Burke or anyone imagined. During the march toward the Darling River, despite all the added obstacles, he would still take time to complete seven sketches of the surrounding lands. And speaking of the Darling River, the expedition would reach it on October 2nd. They were still several days away from Menendee. But here, Burke would finally have some good luck. He was told that a steamship bound for Menendee was due to arrive in the next week. This would be perfect for Burke. He would be able to load the bulk of his supplies onto the ship and have them taken the rest of the way to Menendee. This would allow him to get rid of the wagons now. But things within the expedition were tense as Burke had a new target in his sights, George Landells. There was, by this time, a growing rift between the two men. Landells was upset at the ever-increasing burden his camels were being forced to endure, and Burke hated that Landells fought him on the subject. Two things would happen in the next few days that would force a confrontation between the two. The first incident was on October 7th, when the rum reserved for the camels was broken into by some locals, enraging Burke. Burke had always been wary about the booze, wondering if Landells was selling it on the side or something like that. He ordered it left behind, upsetting Landells. The second incident occurred when, one morning, the expedition would wake up to find that all the camels were gone. Four men would be sent off to gather the animals, but they would get lost. More men would then be sent out to find the lost men, alerting them by banging on the Chinese gong. This comedy of errors only infuriated Burke, who kept wondering what value the camels were actually bringing to the expedition. And in that vein, he wondered the same thing about Landell's. What value was this guy actually bringing to the VEE? Well, everyone would eventually find their way back to camp, but many of the camels would remain missing. After several days, Burke would be forced to hire a local aboriginal man, for five pounds, to track down the animals. All of this was just too much for Burke, who argued with Landell's. This would lead to Landell's threatening to quit. But then, the passive aggressiveness of Burke kicked in, and he begged Landell's to stay. In reality, both men were stubborn and self-centered. Neither wanted to blink. 
In the end, Landell's would remain, for now. William Wills, by the way, respected Landell's for his skill set, but he thought the man selfish and not much of a gentleman. With regards to the camel master, Wills would firmly support anything Burke wanted to do. So the steamship would reach the VEE, and all the supplies would be loaded on October 9th. The ship would then continue on to Men and D. As for the VEE, they would depart on October 11th. On that same day, Burke would have a mark placed on a prominent tree, marking the trail the expedition was now taking. This was called a blaze, and it usually meant putting some sort of notch or marking on a tree to denote a trail. Hence, we get the term blazing a trail. The marking was done at a place called Bill Barca, which was the 30th camp the expedition had established thus far. Wills used an axe to carve out the letters of VEE, meaning the Victorian Exploring Expedition, and then three X's, indicating three Roman numerals, meaning 30. Thus, Camp 30 of the VEE. By the way, Roman numerals were used because they were easier to carve into a tree than regular numeric digits. These blaze markings will be placed along the rest of the route traveled by Burke and Wills. The expedition was now in the last stretch to Menendee, and they would reach the outpost on October 14th. During the journey, Ludwig Becker would have his foot stepped on by a horse. This split his big toe's nail, driving it to the bone. Ouch. Becker could barely walk, and Burke actually let him ride a horse to the next camp. So, Menendee, the northernmost settlement in the region. This meant that the first leg of the journey was now done. The expedition had covered 460 miles in 56 days. That's about 8 miles a day. Menendee itself was not much to look at. There was a police station, a store, a few huts, a pub, and the Thomas Paine Hotel. By the way, the latter still exists, and if you ever go to Menendee, you can have a drink with the ghosts of Burke and Wills and the men of the VEE. The surrounding lands were good for almost nothing. There was no farming, and there was little grass, and the soil was poor. Steamships would come upriver to the outpost every few weeks to collect wool from the ranches. As a note, we actually have a sketch of the area done by Ludwig Becker, which I have posted on our site. So the expedition had reached Menendee, and no sooner had they arrived when more drama began. A final confrontation between Burke and Landells was brewing, but neither man could just go out and force the issue. They had to drag it out and be overly dramatic about the whole thing. Landells was, rightfully, upset that his camels were being overworked. They had hauled 500 pounds each up to Menendee. The camel master would vent his frustration to others, and this included Wills and Hodgkinson, the journalist. Well, long story short, word would reach Burke about the things said by Landells, and he would fire the man. Burke didn't even do the deed himself. He sent Wills to take care of it. Landells, of course, wasn't happy, and he confronted Burke. A fierce argument would break out in front of the others. It was an ugly scene. Landells said Burke was insane. The insults flew, and things got so heated, Burke challenged Landells to a duel. It's such a Burke-like thing to do, as if a duel would prove him right. Well, Landells was no idiot. The last thing he wanted to do was get into a shooting match with a former army officer and policeman. Instead, he tendered his resignation. Herman Beckler, upset at the treatment of Landells, and not thrilled with his own situation in the expedition, would follow suit. Landells would head back to Melbourne the next day, and boy would he have some stories to tell. Beckler agreed to stay on with the expedition until a replacement arrived. And with that, Robert Burke had full mastery of the VEE. The men who might challenge him, Landells or Ferguson, and even Bowman, were gone. Beckler resigned. Becker effectively crippled. Only Wills remained, who, while a talented and capable guy, was also a yes-man to the core. Wills, by the way, would be promoted to second-in-command. The departure of Landells meant that 11 of the original 19 men of the VEE had been fired or resigned. 
On October 15th, the VEE would cross the Darling River, Will supervising the crossing, a slap in the face of Landau's, who stood and watched as his precious camels were led away. Although, to Landau's credit, he did help get the camels across the river, he truly cared for the well-being of the animals, and it must have crushed him to leave them behind. By the way, camels are actually pretty good swimmers. The main issue comes if they are too fat, or if they have a bunch of gear on them. If that happens, the hump can get too heavy, and can tip to one side, dragging down the camel at the same time. But the crossing at the Darling would go well, and the VEE would go about setting up camp while the supplies from the steamship were unloaded. The expedition was now 375 miles from Cooper's Creek. By the way, regarding the supplies, the expedition would find that the pemmican, the dried mix of meat and fat, had rotted. This meant a quarter of their meat was gone. So here on the banks of the Darling River, Burke had a decision to make. He had no wagons, so there were only camels and horses available to transport supplies. October was the start of the dry season, and water holes would soon be drying up as summer approached. Thus, Burke's options were to set up a base in Menendee, and then wait until summer passed, and then go to Cooper's Creek. In doing this, he could get more supplies, possibly recruit some locals to help out, and push north in a more mild climate. His other option was to go now. Burke elected to do the latter. He decided to do this for several reasons. First, Burke learned that South Australia's recent attempt to cross the continent, led by John McDougall Stewart, had failed. Stewart had come within 500 miles of the coast, but he had been forced back by hostile natives. But the scrappy Stewart was already making plans for another expedition. Thus, Burke's desire for glory no doubt pushed him forward. He wanted to win, and he knew that if he waited, he might never get such an opportunity again. The second reason was that Burke just wanted to be free of all the pressure and scrutiny that came with his position. He didn't want to have to read in the papers that he was a failure, or his expedition was falling apart, or hear that his checks were bouncing, or, heaven forbid, get a notice telling him that he was going to be replaced as the expedition's leader. He wanted to be where no one could get to him, and he could do what he wanted. Thus, he elected to go north, despite the potential issues in front of him. Frankly, it was a dangerous decision. Summer in the Australian outback can be a deadly affair. Author Sarah Murgatroyd, in her book The Dig Tree, said, quote, The history of Australian exploration is littered with the corpses of men who underestimated the power, the size, and the unpredictability of the outback. End quote. But Burke was determined to press onward, so that is what he prepared to do. While in Menendee, Burke would meet a local man named William Wright, a tough, weathered bushman. Wright had, until recently, worked at a nearby sheep station, but it was being sold, so he was looking for work. Wright knew a lot about the area, and had even been as far as 150 miles to the north, toward Cooper's Creek. After the two men talked, Wright volunteered to guide the expedition as far as he could. Burke eagerly agreed to the arrangement. Now, Wright did recommend that the expedition stay together and depart now, while the water holes were still full, but Burke would ignore this advice. Instead, Burke elected to split up the expedition, which, by the way, was against his orders. Burke decided he would take what he considered the best of the men, and about three-quarters of the camels and horses, with him to Cooper's Creek. Burke didn't take everyone for two reasons. One, he simply didn't want them all. Men like Becker only slowed him down. And two, he couldn't transport all the supplies with the camels and horses that he had, not without wagons. Thus, four men, seven horses, and ten camels would be left in Menendee under the command of Herman Beckler, at least until his replacement arrived. Burke said that he would send for the rest of the men at a later date. It was rather vague, but everyone assumed that that meant Burke would dispatch someone back with the horses and camels, and they would then bring the rest of the supplies up to Cooper's Creek. 
No matter, Burke likely felt liberated as he prepared to head north, as he would finally be free of distractions. Burke and Wills would depart from Menendee on October 19, 1860. The men included William Bra, William Patton, Charlie Gray, Tom McDonough, and John King, the latter a 22-year-old former soldier who had come from India with George Landells. He would be in charge of the camels. Dost Mohammed, one of the sepoys, was also brought along to assist King. William Wright and two Aboriginal guides were also with the expedition. There were 16 camels and 19 horses loaded with supplies. Burke was now clear of the civilized world. No news could reach him, no newspapers could mock him, and no newsletters or telegrams could cloud his mind. And he was free of having to worry about the whole scientific aspect of the expedition, and with Landells out of the way, there was no one trying to lord command of the camels over Burke. So, with the addition of William Wright and the Aboriginal guides, Burke felt good about the future. Before departing Menendee, he would write, quote, I still feel as confident as ever in the success of the main object of the expedition, end quote. And that main object was crossing the continent. So, heading towards Cooper's Creek is where we will leave the Burke and Wills expedition for today. But our story, we will find going forward, will jump around to different locations. And for now, we will go back to Melbourne. Word about what was happening within the expedition was, indeed, reaching the Royal Society and the newspapers. You just don't fire half of your men and not expect some blowback. And there certainly were questions, especially when Charles Ferguson and Landells returned to Melbourne. Ferguson was running around telling anyone who would listen about Burke's incompetence. And Landells would tell one of the newspapers, quote, Everything is mismanaged, and in fact, if Mr. Burke had his way, everything would go to the devil, end quote. Word of Burke challenging Landells to a duel made it look like things were spinning out of control. The Royal Society was embarrassed by the whole thing, but they defended their man. And they would, when word went around about all the bounced checks, get 6,000 more pounds allotted to the expedition. Burke, for his part, had sent back a series of letters explaining his decisions. William Wills did the same thing. Both men would claim that Landells had been disloyal and was undermining the expedition. It was all pretty petty, aimed to quell what Burke assumed would be a firestorm. So we will finish with Burke and Wills and their men on the march to Cooper's Creek, and rumors and gossip running rampant back in Melbourne and throughout Australia. The newspapers in South Australia especially relished the news coming back about the chaos within the VEE, because their man, John McDowell Stewart, was already preparing to return to the outback. In fact, on January 1st, 1861, McDowell Stewart would depart with a dozen men and 49 horses and provisions for 30 weeks. His aim was to cross the continent, but he was weeks behind the Victorian expedition. By the way, the Victorian newspapers were just as brutal in their treatment of Stuart as the South Australian papers were of Burke and the VEE. Stuart was accused of slaughtering innocent aborigines, not true, and having just sat around in the north getting drunk and never really even undertaking his expedition. Again, not true, although Stuart's binge drinking was legendary. It was all part of the rivalry between the two colonies. Now, final comment for the day. It is interesting to note that Burke had transformed the VEE from this behemoth of an entity with all sorts of conflicting goals to a leaner and slimmed-down expedition with a very focused goal, cross the continent. It was not unlike what Charles McDowell Stewart had done in the past and was preparing to do in the near future. It makes you wish Burke and the Society had been able to narrow the focus of the VEE from the start. It would have eliminated so many distractions and improved the odds for success. So that is it for today. Part 3 of the Burke and Wills Expedition. I hope you are enjoying this tale. Next time we will get the expedition to Cooper's Creek and look to set off into the unknown in a bid to become the first men to cross Australia. 
Thank you so much for listening. I will see you next time. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.